0: Hello, my name is Kevin Fernando. I'm a GP partner at North Berwick Health Centre near Edinburgh and also Education Director of GP Notebook Education. Welcome to the current season of GP Notebook Podcast, a bite-sized regular chat for all of us working in primary care. Podcast will cover clinical tips and hacks, as well as hot topics to help make our lives a wee bit easier, but ultimately to help improve the lives of our patients in primary care. I've been recently involved in planning a series of webcasts for healthcare professionals in the UK, which are all taking place during May 2021 as part of what we're calling Chronic Conditions Month. The webcasts, which are being run in association with GP Notebook, are designed to help all of us working in primary care with the significant challenges we've faced in diagnosing and managing chronic conditions over the past year in the midst of the COVID pandemic. Healthcare professionals in UK can register to attend all the events for free at www.chronicconditions.co.uk. So I hope you'll be interested in joining us. And to accompany the, these webcasts, the Chronic Conditions Faculty has recorded a series of podcasts in the past few weeks in which we provide some practical advice and suggestions to help you optimise care here and now across a range of conditions. So, without further delay, please enjoy the final one of these special episodes now. This one is brought to you by Dr. Rob Hampton and Dr. Peter Bagshaw.
1: Hello, I'm Peter Bagshaw, GP and Mental Health CCG Clinical Lead, and I'm joined today by Rob Hampton. Following 15 years as a GP partner, he's now a portfolio GP with an interest in MSK medicine and drug and alcohol treatment. Welcome to our new podcast, which comes to you as an introduction to chronic conditions month 2021 to be held throughout May. This will include a whole string of interactive and informative webcasts designed to address the primary care challenges of diagnosing and managing chronic conditions at a time when COVID-19 has thrown out the rulebook. In the podcast today, we're going to be discussing opioids and musculoskeletal pain.
2: Hello Peter, Uh, good to talk to you again and um, welcome everybody to this uh, podcast.
1: Absolutely and I did a talk a couple of years ago on different painkillers and going through them really there's there's nothing which is safe and effective is there and we were all taught the analgesic ladder but there's been new guidelines saying that maybe we should have a different approach what's your view on this? Yes, I remember your talk well, and the uh,
2: latest guidance from NICE, um, which has been out there for, uh, the draft guidelines have been out there for consultation for a few months now, actually going to be fully published uh, April 7th, so not long to wait now. And a very strong theme in those is that the usual painkillers across the board, but specifically I think uh, as a theme for today, opioid medication have no place, no evidence that they are helpful towards um, people's long-term health and well-being when they're exhibiting chronic pain,
1: chronic pain pain being pain that goes on beyond six weeks. And of course, we've seen an explosion in uh, opioid-related deaths and diseases and addiction, particularly in the States, but now finding its way over here as well. But you and I as GPs will be confronted with people with, say, increasing spinal pain, saying what I'm taking at the moment isn't working. You've, you must do something, doctor. What do we do when we're faced with patients like, like that who are clearly in genuine pain? Yes, and I think this is really where we struggle
2: with our, our, our whole sort of um, ethos as being GPs, which is to work with patients to relieve suffering. And dealing with ten-minute consultations, and probably a world which doesn't um, totally, um, or doesn't uh, seem to give us many options at scale to try and help people with long-term pain. Um, So our reaction is very immediate: more painkillers. As you say, there is the World Health Organization um, pain ladder, which I think its simplicity has led to this problem with um, perhaps over-prescribing and then long-term prescribing when it's not helpful. To sort of ask, address your question about the dilemma we as GPs face, this feels so similar to the way we still are in some cases, but probably more so five or six years ago with antibiotics. There is huge criticism uh, in the press and perhaps by some uh, of our other colleagues in other areas of clinical medicine about prescribing. Um, but actually, uh, within that consultation, a real expectation that we should be prescribing to help that person at that time in that transaction. Um, and very little around us, little wraparound support for GPS um, to, to actually say, no, at this, on this occasion I don't think you need to, I'm not going to prescribe. Here are the reasons. In fact, here's what I'm going to suggest instead, and it's the what instead, um, that I think we, we lack in this area. Um, So I think to follow that through, I don't know if you remember this, Peter, but uh, about five years ago, I think it was, around Leicester, certainly around bus shelters, on BBC Radio Leicester, on TV even, we had adverts um, telling people that, look, if your GP says you don't need antibiotics, you probably don't need antibiotics. And I really felt the difference in the consultation that week because um, it felt then that people were already sort of briefed to the fact that maybe antibiotics weren't going to be helpful in their case. Um, And at the same time, the CCGs gave us all sorts of leaflets and resources to to actually give to patients links to YouTube videos that would just explain that outside the consultation and empower us to begin to make better decisions around prescribing. I'm really hoping that's what we'll be um,
1: aiming for Um, with this, uh, in this field of opioid over I I think you're right, Rob. And certainly uh, I don't get the demand for antibiotics from patients that I did those years ago. But it's not the same message yet with uh, particularly opioids and other painkillers, is it? Because we haven't got those alternatives. In in fact, uh, for spinal pain, I think it's even less, isn't it? Because uh, it's now changed in that they don't recommend injections which always used to be our, our go-to, if you can't do anything else, refer them for an injection. So what do we replace painkillers with? Well, um, I think there's, there's two things here. The
2: first is when you're, you're meeting somebody going from acute into chronic pain. Um, and I think at that level, perhaps, and in fact, we're already seeing a levelling off of opioid prescription in the UK, an actual reversal in the States. Um Perhaps we're seeing that uh, we are already addressing um, people with acute pain by encouraging activity, maybe short bursts of medication, rather than putting people on repeat medication. Um, and I think when it comes to people going from acute into chronic pain, perhaps the services around us through uh, self-referral, physiotherapy, um, and uh, some of the the, um, uh, the community pain clinics, if you have access to all of those, um, often run by extended scope physios, we're seeing the addressing of those issues and beliefs that lead to long-term pain and long-term prescribing begin to be addressed a bit better. The second theme, the second area, where I feel there is far more unmet needs, is when people have been stuck in that situation of chronic pain for a year or two or more, already on all this medication, um, and the, 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 we just know through experience, I've been involved with work myself, uh, um projects in Leicester that to reverse that situation so people are coming off all that medication adopting um more active lifestyles uh, and beginning actually to, to take control of pain management we're a long way from that um in most areas um and we're still uh in, in the world of actually um you know, various projects in primary care that, that, that reveal how good this is, you know good that approach is. The most recent one in your area, actually, Peter, uh, de-stress led by um, uh, Richard Bing in Plymouth, um, just showed the value of um, spending a lot more time with people who are on these medications to begin to address not just their pain needs, but their, their lives, really, uh, and tap into areas of support in their community to begin to make them thrive and feel uh, valued within their, their world. Um, and that has a knock on pain. We do not have that at scale. I'm really hopeful that NICE guidelines come out in November of this year to address how to get people off opioids will begin to open up far more resources in primary care to address this. And that should really be attached to the social prescribing agenda. I'd be interested in your um, uh, experience, Peter, Um, but certainly uh, in my world of primary care, social prescribing Hasn't really addressed this cohort of people. It seems to be far more around um, the uh, elderly and the lonely, um, where it's really thrived,
1: but not people of working age with long-term pain stuck on opioid medication. I I think that's right. What has helped uh, in my practice, certainly, is having a practice MSK physiotherapist who will often act as the first point of contact for somebody presenting with joint pain. They've not yet got into the chronic pain uh, side of things, though there's a a big drive with talking therapies for all chronic conditions, including chronic pain. Uh, And I think that's going to be something that will be big for the future. The other thing that I've found in terms of other things that you can do for pain are lifestyle. So I've become increasingly convinced from personal experience that if you change your diet and try and reduce weight, and have foods that are not so inflammatory, it really can reduce joint pain quite a lot. I don't know if you think this is all a bit left field and uh, unscientific or, or whether you give any credence to this, Rob. Well, no, I think what you're describing there is the fact that chronic non-cancer pain is not
2: a pure biomedical problem. It's mm-hmm. a social problem And so there's a lot more wrapped up um, within the suffering that people have with chronic pain, and therefore a lot more wrapped up with trying to find solutions to that pain. Um, And so, uh, you know, dietary um, changes—is it that the dietary changes actually improve uh, metabolism, lose weight? Is that help people lose weight? Is that what's helping with pain, or is it something more about feeling more in control of your uh, your personal space, your well-being? Or is it something actually to do with the food? I don't know. <laughs> what I do know is a solution to people's chronic pain tends not to be something to just treat the pain biomedically. It tends to be something a lot more about people feeling more in control of their lives. I'll give you an example of that. It's an example I always um, come back to. I was involved with a, a project called From Pain to Prospect. It was people had been off work for many, many years with uh, long-term pain disorders. In fact, they were on um, employment support allowance with that, um, but they were given the opportunity to work with a case manager, uh, pain at the same time as being involved in a pain management clinic, to really explore what are the issues here keeping you away from work, because we know that work is good for people's pain, as it, just as a, as a concept. Um, and on this occasion, this guy had been off work for about seven years. Never been to a pain clinic, um, had never was on medication. But when you really drilled down to it, his problem was that he'd lost his front teeth through an assault. And once his teeth were sorted out, he just felt so much more ready to go out there in the outside world and um, found a job, came off his painkillers, and just began to thrive. There's an illustration. Somebody with chronic pain, years and years and years on opioid medication, and in fact, his problem was confidence,
1: in dealing with the outside world for something that was fixable that had never been addressed. That's really interesting. And it's a difficult balance, isn't it? Because in a way, every disease is psychosomatic. It has both a physical element and a, a mental health element or, or a psychological element. But we don't want to gaslight people with chronic pain, who clearly have a, a genuine pain, but also clearly can genuinely be helped by these psychological interventions? Yes,
2: I think that's always the difficulty in the consultations, trying to address those um, non biomedical issues within a 10 minute consultation. And usually I don't, I'd advise GPs, you're not going to do it in one consultation, you may need two or three to begin to get people to actually buy into that fact. I mean, ask anybody who has a chronic pain disorder. Um, Is your pain worse on a day when you're having a bad day? And they all say yes. Mm. Um, And so I think that reflecting that fact and saying, well, if we can work a way for you to have better days, um, maybe you'll feel more confident in what we know will help you um, with your pain around activity, acceptance, um, sometimes some form of mindfulness. To get you feeling more in control of that pain, the other thing I do reflect, and this is almost like uh, I think what we cannot do as GPs is not validate the fact that, that their pain is biomedical in some ways. Um, people with chronic pain who've got into that sort of, um, uh, sort of chronicity, if you like, um, when you look at their MRI scans, functional MRI scans, uh, and problem poke them in various places, their brain lights up in ways that yours and mine wouldn't, because we'd never with chronic pain. So, in fact, what they experience is very real, and trying to detach the uh, um, the, the, the emotional um, impact of chronic pain from the pure sort of biomedical pain pathway is really what we're trying to achieve, Is we're saying you have chronic pain, but we can help you feel more in control of that pain, and just reflecting that, that their you know, their brains aren't really active when they're in pain. But our aim is to try and reduce that it can often be, I think, help helpful reflection using biomedical biomedical example and validating the fact that their pain is real because
1: it is real i don't know if we still believe in it but i often cite Melzack and wall's gate theory to patients the idea that the brain is not just a passive recipient of uh of nerve impulses but actually has an active role in whether it dampens or facilitates them
2: yes yes And, and that's right and i think sometimes explain you know using to, 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 to help people feel that they, you know, they have a place in treatment rather than being a passive recipient of drugs, um, to, to explain why we think that in a biomedical way is actually quite helpful. I think. Uh, and again, in one of the projects that I was involved with, where we dealt with people who had unexplained or unresolved pain, we actually put together a short um, animation to explain that um, that whole concept of what of uh, why your pain has become chronic. Um, And it was well received, I think about 80% of uh, the people coming into the project, and even more
1: actually GPs, you know, GPs, you find this helpful with patients, thought actually yes, that's a really helpful way of constructing that. So you've mentioned NICE guidelines a few times. Are are you able to give us a sneak preview of this? Have you been involved in writing them up? Uh, I've not been involved in writing them up, but I'm keeping a close eye, particularly on the,
2: the chronic pain guidelines. Um, and they, it's very similar for those people listening who are aware of the uh, the back pain and scientific guidelines. The themes are very similar. And it is that um, when you spot the signs that, that something is going from acute to chronic pain early, to get people um, involved with a rehabilitation approach rather than a take the drugs approach um, is always going to be helpful. Um, and as you've mentioned, I think, already, I think now we have, uh, again, in our patch, it's a bit it's variable. But when, if you do have um, first contact physiotherapy practitioners, they're usually um, very good at beginning to spot this and begin to, to put into place the, uh, the right form of rehabilitation rather than cure um, <clears throat> uh, uh, treatment in place to try and prevent that sort of descent into chronicity. Um, the, uh, and, and, the, and, the, and the guidelines are very specific about not having long-term medication. Um, so that's the chronic pain guidelines. The, the guidelines came in November about assistance to take people off long-term opioid medication. That's the, the very early stages. We don't have anything um, that I can uh, see other than a brief at the moment. And that's what I'm really excited about, because uh, that, I hope, will give us a a framework that will have a lot more wraparound support for GPs when trying to help people off medication, in the same way we have had with antibiotics for a few years now.
1: That's really interesting. So I think you've given us a, an excellent taster for what's to come in May. Thank you very much for that, Rob. And thank you all for listening. We hope you found this podcast helpful please make sure to register both for the other podcasts in this series and for our interactive webcasts brought to you as part of Chronic Conditions Month 2021. You can sign up at chronicconditions.co.uk. Thank you, Rob, and thank you all for listening.